From the Open Championship being cancelled to twin holes in one at the Albany Golf Club, we've got it all this week on Inside the Ropes, including the world-famous Ask Clates. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. G'day everybody, welcome to Inside the Ropes, episode number 158. We continue to press on in this uh, unusual world, ever-changing as it is, and uh, the golf landscape took another significant turn. Last night, um, Australian time, we continue to catch up via Skype, so if there is a little uh, audio glitch here or there along the way, hopefully you'll stick with us. Andy Marr alongside Mark Hayes, as is always the case. Hayes, good to see you and good to hear from you, mate. Yeah, g'day, Murray. It's nice to see you too. And uh, I really, I know that people who are listening to this can't see it, but I really like the whiskers that you're starting to roll there. I think this playoff playoff beard sort of thing you've got going is really uh, doing you good good things. I've decided to follow in your uh, esteemed footsteps, my friend. So uh, I'll catch up with you at some stage, I imagine. But um, you'll need to give me. Although I'm a hairy beast, I can't believe how quickly it's grown. To be honest, so that's um, got to be some sort of positive you take in there. Um, I don't know whether has Clayton's ever had a beard, to your knowledge, Hazy. I'm not sure Mike Clayton's ever had a beard. I've not seen one, but I reckon he would have rocked a really mean moustache somewhere in the eighties. No, nah, I don't nah. reckon he has. Uh, Mike Clayton joins us for our special Ask Clayton's edition, which we'll get to soon. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Abby. No have beard. Have you ever place? had any sort of no, no, no beard, never, no. How, what's the most days growth you've ever had? I reckon I did a week once in Europe. A week off on the European tour. Right, a question without note. Question without notice, straight off the top. The greatest bearded golfer in the history of the game. Who is it? Go. Uh, old Tom Morris. Okay, in the modern era, in the television <laughs> era. Uh, who did Craig Stadler have one? Didn't he? Who else? I mean, there have been a few with beards, haven't there? Stadler uh, had the big mo. Did he ever like the big handlebar mo? Did he ever technically have a beard, Hazy? I'm not sure, Stadler. Uh, I was watching him last night on one of those Masters channels, and he just had he was rocking the Mustaka, but not the beard. What about uh, what about our great mate Frank Nobolo? He just went to kind of stubbly, unshaven look. I never quite figured out how he did that, but <laughs> yeah, no, well, maybe somebody. Well, I'm sure we're missing a really obvious one somewhere. So maybe can someone can send us through the greatest bearded golfer in the television era? We need some evidence of this, um, not just. Some- some sort of, um, some sort of drawing from 1872 or something like that. We need photographic, documented evidence of this. Um, righto, let, let's start with the big news. We woke up this morning to the news that uh, the RNA had cancelled the Open for 2003. Not not postponed it, not delayed it, not let's take five and search for an alternative. They have decided that it is over. It won't be played in 2020. Your thoughts on on this? You go first, Clates. Well, predictable. Uh, once Wimbledon had gone, and I mean, I'm assuming that the whole year's a write-off. They keep postponing stuff and scheduling the Masters in the first week in November. But it's hard to imagine us coming back at all this year, isn't it? I would think. I mean, it's all. I mean, everyone's guessing at this point. But my question would be, how's the 2021 Masters looking in April? That's the real question, I think. It's yeah, a fair I, question. What, what about you, Hazy? I did think it was inevitable, and there was a you know the the American media 
um, segments of it last week had reported that the Open had already been cancelled. The RNA was at pains to point out that it hadn't made a final decision, but I, I, I believe those reports were pretty true. And um, my understanding of that from a – with no knowledge of this at all, um, just from having read on the, a couple of American websites, is that the RNA needed to act by a certain date to enact um, an insurance policy. And they also yep. needed to cancel as opposed to postpone so that the policy would have full effect. And, you know, um, I, I've i read different things uh, for, for different events that have been cancelled and some of them have taken insurance and some haven't. Uh, and the RNA is wise enough and, and liquid enough to have had the insurance policy. So I'm sure that's been a factor in this decision. So... so- so while that makes perfect economic sense, it's there to be used and they've decided to utilise it. If you want to be a bit Pollyanna about this, um, you can you can suggest that in this in this time of sporting bodies all over the world desperately hoping that they can get something in to salvage some financial sort of windfall from the potential wreckage, if you want to be Pollyanna about the RNA's decision. Um, you can say at least they've been decisive, and they haven't dilly dallied about this. They've just said that's it. We're not we're not going to have nine months or eight months now. We're not going to have eight months of can we get it in before the thirty first of December? Can we get this thing played? What's the at least they've just said no. That's it. it it's done. So, is there any credit to be issued to them for that? Uh, I, I I sort of agree with Clayton. I think the whole season's sort of um, hanging on a knife's edge, but I. I I do think it's very strange the way they're going about uh, all the reordering. I, I've actually got a bit of a summary here on the men's side. I'll do the women's in a couple of minutes, Andy, but the the changes are extraordinary. So um, the US Open um, has been um, – there's no formal decision made on that as far as I understand, um, but the week of that is they've kept it open for the potential PGA Tour event to be moved in there. Um, the same week as the Open had been, they've kept that week open for another potential tour event to move in there. And that's, that's, that's folly. That's just silliness, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, if, if it's not good enough to hold the Open, surely it's not good enough to hold, you know, a tournament somewhere in the United States. Um, the PGA Championship's been moved to August uh, 3 to 9, the week of the, the Sunday is the, the 9th of August. Um, that was the second week of the Olympic window. Um, the FedEx Cup playoffs are basically going to be running the four weeks immediately on the back of that. The US Open, sorry, has moved to September the 20th is the Sunday, which is another two weeks after the Tour Championship. The Ryder Cup's the week after. And then, as Clayt says, the Masters has been rescheduled right now to the 15th of November, the Sunday. So, um, you know, massive changes. And and that's, a, that's the, the full scope of bar the open of majors and playoffs and and including the Ryder Cup all in the space of like two to three months. I can't see it happening for for, for many reasons, to be honest, but the, the jam-packed schedules is going to be brutal if it does come off. What, what, is it, what does it say to you, Clates, in terms of um, is it what, – what if we had a year? What, what if – I mean, it's not inconceivable this is going to happen, but – what does it matter if we have a year because of this global, you know, pandemic? What if we have a year where nothing happens, nothing gets played? I mean, obviously there'll be some, you know, money lost and, you know, there'll be some issues with you know, TV rights and, and all, all of that sort of stuff. But 
But the, the the game survives okay, doesn't it? We pick up our yeah. pieces when we you know when we can, and we we all push on, don't we? What's I mean, there's a blind panic about this sort of stuff that is a bit un, unseemly, I reckon. Of course, in twenty years we look back and go, well, that was just a year. Well, I just missed a year. You know, I'm of course you'd rather play, but I just don't think it's that big a deal that you've got to jam everything in and just wait a year and play next year. I mean, there's much more important stuff than playing professional golf right now. And the tour is going to look a whole lot different in 2021 than it is now. It's, I mean, for a start, it's hard to imagine playing for $10 million every week like that through now. Clayton, I wanted to ask you another question, trivia question without notice. Um, seeing this show is all about you this week. Um, the, uh, the Open has been cancelled for five years uh, in 1915 and six years in 1940. There's only been one other time when it's been cancelled. Can you tell me when and the reason? This is a big trivia question without notice. Oh, yeah, they didn't have the prize, mate. In like 1873 or something, 1871? 1871 is correct. 1871, yeah, they forgot the prize money. And wasn't there a dispute between Presswick and, and St Andrews or something? No, I think it was young Tom Morris had won three times in a row the preceding three years. And, and the the original rules of the Open Championship were that if you won it three years, you got to keep the belt, and it was pretty fancy. That was the the trophy. It was a very lucrative belt, so it was seen as a big prize, and young Tom Morris won it three times in a row, and they couldn't rustle up another trophy to play for yeah. in 1871. Yeah, that was what they – well, they just, they just screwed it up between them. They just made a mess of it. And another trivia question, Hazy, was that um, – so Dick Burton was the Open champion for three years as he won it in 1930. Nine, I guess. Five, yeah. Well, yeah, no, more than that. But he had the trophy for a while. The, you know, the war years were in the Second War. He was a club pro at Coombe Hill in London. Anyway, that's a trivia question from nowhere. <laughs> well, yeah, my how are you? Um, there's been, I've been sensing in the last couple of days, um, just, just right on the edges, right on the edges, um, some, some, um, uh, frustration, for want of a better word, from from cl- club golfers that they can't get on. It depends where they live, obviously, but you know, course are being shut. Uh, you can't get on. You can't play. And now there's this big argument about you know the essential nature of golf and uh, the the physical and mental well being of golfers and just how important getting on their course is for them. And there's been a bit of a push, I reckon. It's getting a Getting nasty, but it, but people are getting a bit a bit ragged around the edges. Obviously, there's a lot of factors to that. But are we comfortable as this continues to roll on? Are you two? Are you two? I know you. Your thoughts on this, Hazy? I want. Are you as staunch as you were last week? And Clates, I've seen some stuff from you on social media. Can you, for those of people who don't follow you on Twitter, can you sort of give us your view on on course closures around the place? Well, my exercise is exercise. It's go for a walk. It's not playing golf for four hours. And I agree with Jeff Shackelford. I think it's a, it's a bad look for a game that's seen by people who don't play it as elitist and privileged to be out there playing golf when everyone's supposed to be inside. So let's just pack the clubs up and go inside and wait this thing out. That's the way I see it. I'm sure it's a pain in the ass, but you know, it's not going to go on forever and I just think it's a bad look for privileged golf clubs to be for people to be looking through the fence and saying, "Why are these guys playing golf?" 
Uh, yeah, and I, I, my position hasn't changed, Andy. So um, if it's not essential, which clearly it's not, um, then why aren't you at home, basically, is, is my call. And, and I want to be out there desperately. Um, every, do- every day that I get out of the car, out of the house here, I, I by default go past my beautiful Kerr Lewis and it looks like in mint condition. I want to be there desperately, but as Clayton says, it'll be there. Um, and there's just, there's just no point. Um, it, it, stay at home means stay at home to me. So, you know, are we, are we going to follow? Are we in to try and fix the problem or are we not? Uh, my answer is yes. I think that I can safely say to you that Golf Australia has caught more abuse in the past, and we cop it a lot anyhow, but we've caught more in the last two or three weeks than I can ever recall. Um, we firstly were copying it for not shutting courses, then we were copying it for shutting courses. And there's, um, if I can be so bold as to say, some of the responses that um, emails, social media things have made, made me feel crook in the guts, literally. Um, some really bad eggs in Australian society who can't put anything else. I, you're absolutely entitled to your opinion and mental health and exercise and all that stuff. Get it all. Make your case, not a problem. But if you start abusing me or my colleagues, you've stepped, you've stepped, overstepped the line, and not only will you not get a response, I think you, you know, you'll go down the batting order when it comes to, you know, us moving out the other side. I just think that there's a civil way to treat people, and a lot of people have stepped, overstepped the mark here. And there's no, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, I assume, you know, if I went down the road and jumped the fence at Sandwich Beach and played golf. When the course is shut, it's perfectly fine. It's not going to hurt anyone, but, you know, it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward concept, you know, and I think you both made your points um, really well. Clayton, are you worried about uh, – we spoke to the, you know, the CEO of, um, you know, golf course managers last week on the show. I've, I've butchered the title completely here, Hazy, but – are you? Do you have any concern for what's going to happen if this thing goes on for longer than maybe we're imagining it will? Um, are you? Do you have any concern with what's going to happen to um, you know golf courses around the place? The, the physical deterioration of them. Well, as long as they're allowed to maintain them, they'll be fine. I mean, New Zealand's in the ridiculous situation of them not being allowed to maintain their golf courses, which is completely crazy. But at least it seems to me. But you know, as long as we're allowed to maintain them, they'll come back fine. And, you know, I mean, obviously the financial viability of clubs is more important. I mean, how many clubs lose memberships? How many clubs, you know, can't sustain the fees they're charging? And so that, that's a much more important question than, you know, the maintenance will be fine. You know, it's how the clubs come back from this is, because, you know, who knows what the financial position of everybody going to be a year from now. And Andy, just further to the to the GA's position, what Clates just said then is absolutely the priority. Um, and anyone who thinks um, the GA made the rec- their recommendation lightly is um, crazy. Um, it affects everyone. It affects me. I'll be losing, um, you know, a fair chunk, if not all of my job in the next couple of weeks. And um, it's a very tough situation, as Clates mentioned. And Golf Australia's uh, absolute priority going forward, and there's already huge discussions and plans um, being generated, uh, is all around the clubs, club health. So saving the clubs to start with, rebuilding and then flourishing from there. So hopefully in the next couple, two to three weeks, you'll start to see a big plan evolve around that and become more public. But that's absolutely the priority in Australian golf. It's going to be uh, – there's a – 
Just as an aside, I don't know whether you've read much of Aaron Darty Roy's work over the past, either of you two fellas, but uh, it's certainly not golf-related, and she doesn't write about the great game, but uh, she's written some amazing um, books, and she wrote an incredible article this week about um, what the world might look like um, coming out of this thing, and I, I won't paraphrase it because it's far too beautiful a piece of writing for me to do that to it, but if you want to search it, you'll be able to find it, and it's, uh, it'll be so interesting to see how golf looks at the end of this, um, whether we're playing for the same purses, as you mentioned before, Clates, what, what the whole, what, what the club landscape looks like, uh, it's going to be a really interesting world that uh, emerges from um, from this, and uh, whether it changes at all, time will tell. Um that's deeply philosophical, though, isn't it? We don't want to be going there. We won't have enough time to if we go down that wormhole. Well, who was the name? What was their name again, Andy? Aaron Darty Roy. Aaron Darty. Oh, you got to read. Got, uh, oh yeah, it's an amazing piece, and she's written some incredible books. Clates, you would have read her stuff, wouldn't you? I, I read it because you retweeted it. It was really good. Yeah, amazing. Hey, um, well, let's get a break out of the way because this is a Ooh. special Ask Clates edition, Hazy. Uh, and there's some fantastic questions that have come in, not only from punters, but professional golfers. Pros have, have, have hooked into this, and they've got some questions for you, Clate. So uh, hopefully you're ready for it on the other side of the break. It's Inside the Ropes, episode number 158. We've got a special with a couple of ladies over at Elbury Golf Club later on in the show who both had a hole-in-one on the same day a couple of weeks ago. But when we come back, the first of a couple of segments of Ask Clates. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. Uh, it's one of our favourite. We do this a couple of times a year and it's always uh, one of our favourite uh, episodes whenever we get the chance to dive a bit deep into the great brain of Mike Clayton Hazy. Uh, the right. hashtag's been out for a week, uh, Ask Clates. And some outstanding questions have been rolling through from from fans and players alike. So we, we uh, Andy, great... Andy, Andy, we've already mentioned um, you know the RNA having an insurance policy. I couldn't get one on this for Clates, um, <laughs> so I wanted to just for you know for for just to keep things above board for us in case things go south. But we just have to go go uh, bareback. Right. So Falcon has curated the uh, the questions that come in from near and far, as we said. Um, Clates, are you ready for this? I'm ready, Barry. Far right away. Right. Hazy, you go first, mate. All right, Clates, if you could have asked Alistair McKenzie one question, what would it have been? And that comes from Alistair Phillip. What would it have been? Um, wow, if you could ask him one. That's, um, well, that's, um, that's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> I imagine it would be. What would, you, what would you ask Alice McKenzie? Um, Let's go and play 18 holes so you can have four hours with him. Okay. Well, well what about this? What well, is he? What is he? Uh, here's what I would have asked him. How, how much easier would your life have been if Augusta National had paid you the fees they owed you for designing their golf course? <laughs> oh, beautiful. Because beautiful. he died, died penniless in 1934, pleading for his money. So, mind you, they weren't in the financial position they're in now, but. Um, that was a bad deal at the end of his life for him. So what would he say, Clates, if you asked him what he thought of um, uh, the week-to-week the -week golf courses that the US Tour sets up for its players to compete on? What would he say? He would say, didn't you yeah. read my book? 
Yeah. Okay, so question question number two for Ask Plates comes from Scott Hen, a name well oh, known to all. Yeah. Handy. How many blind tee shots should be on a golf course? Well, there should be no rules, but I mean, obviously keep them to a minimum, but you know, a place like Royal County Downs, one of the best courses in the world. It's got a bunch of them. So it depends if the second shots they set up are worthwhile. So the 16th at Kingston Heath is not an ideal tee shot up and over the hill there, but it sets up one of the best second shots in the country. So if what they set up is worth it, then you know you can you can have any number of them, but 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 the fewer the better. But if you're trying to eliminate blind tee shots, then you you know you're eliminating a lot of what can potentially make a hole great. Sorry, Hazy. Can I have a supplementary question to that? Hey, when you design a golf course with a with a blind tee shot, do you like having some sort of identifier, marker, target to direct the the, the drive towards or over? Yeah, there are two good examples in Melbourne. The the fourth at Royal Melbourne, you play right over those bunkers. You know, if you hedge a bit right of them. You've got to hit it further to get past the trees on the corner. You know, you can go left, but you've got a much longer second shot. So, you know, taking your line off those bunkers works perfectly. In I'm going to go out. The um, seventh hole at the dunes looks like you want to hit right through the middle of the saddle, which logically is what you should do in a blind shot. But, it, but, but you've got to hit 20 yards left. It. So that's a great example of a, you know, sort of a, a Side a line in the in the distance that doesn't really work, but the one at Royal Melbourne works perfectly. I'm going to go a little bit off uh, out of order here, Andy, on our run sheet because it's irrelevant right now. The next question from a regular contributor ask ask Clates is from Wilco. These thoughts read trees on the inside corner of dog legs. On the inside corner or the outside corner? Wasn't it the outside corner? Uh, this is the inside. It says here from Wilco. Oh, the inside. Well, the in, trees on the inside corner of dog legs never work as well as hazards on the ground. So it depends how closely out of the line of play. So, again, the great dog leg right hole in Australia is the sixth at Royal Melbourne, made by hazards on the ground, not hazards in the air. So if you've got trees on the inside corner and the choice is to hit up and over them, to a target by definition you can't see, it always makes for a bad hole. So trees in lieu of hazards on the ground are always bad on the inside corner. Um, if you could, this comes from Adrian Miller, if you could dictate technology for a tournament, what roughly time in history would you go with uh, so that RM, Kingston, Heath, Commonwealth, et al. played as they should? Is there a, do you understand the question coming yeah. from Adrian? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, depends what he means by players that should. But the first and 17th holes at Kingston for par fives were in the 30s. So they were drives and woods and chip shots or maybe the long hitters gone for two. Well, I think the balance was pretty good between 1935 and 1990, really. 1995 even. You know, the course had obviously gotten shorter. You know, as Norman came on the scene and guys started really hitting the ball a long way, but you know, it's completely post the Pro V1 and the titanium drivers and graphite shafts. The balance is completely out. 
So if you went from the mid-1930s, which was the era of Steel Shafts, Hogan and Sneed and Nelson, through to you know, Norman's era, those courses played beautifully, I think. It's actually, I've been watching that uh, Masters channel, Andy, with... Uh, oh, I'm taking the eyes off it. Yeah, and it's amazing to see how many um, third, like flick third shots there are to the par fives back in the day, and you'd never see them anymore. It's just a matter of whether they hit a, a four iron or a seven iron into the par five so for the second. When did it change? When did it change? Do you reckon you two? What? 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 Give me the give me the two to three year period where it went from that that you're talking about to uh, all of the all of the par fives just being two shot par fives at Augusta. When, when did that actually change? Well, it changed with the Pro V one and the solid ball. So that was kind of nineteen two thousand. Okay. And and then the RNA let the size of the driver head get out of control. So the driver head got way too big. And they figured out how to make them, you know, with a graphite shaft, they could make them lighter and so two inches longer. So, you know, you know, it was that period right at the turn of the century that the RNA and the USJ just let the game get completely out of control. And, and well, not out of control, it was out of balance. So, you know, the, the holes that were 450-yard holes that were formerly... You know, drives and four and five lines routinely became drives and nine lines and drives and wedges for the mm. top players. Which is the perfect segue to the next question from the very, it's sort of Life of Brian style sort of uh, operator here, Decimus Meridius. I love it. Uh, I love it. Um, we won't go down the Life of Brian name choice here, but if you could, Plates, be in charge of the USGA slash RNA for a day, what one decision or new idea would you implement that you think would have the single biggest impact to the game of every of the everyday player? Why, well, if if it's an equipment question, it's roll the ball back for the pros. Um, the best thing that golf could do would be to make a ball that went further for the average woman player and then the average old guy. So I'm not sure if that's possible, but that would be an amazing thing to do to make a ball that players could pick that would make the game more fun for them if it went further. And from an architecture point of view, less rough, less long grass. Sorry, Hazy, go ahead. No, no, you, I was going to just lining up for the next question. The, 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 long, the less grass is, I think, the best one from the... I, 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 keep, I love your opinions on this stuff, Clates. Yeah, just you know, less rough. I mean, Mackenzie wrote about in the Spirits and Andrews about how long grass was such a bad hazard. But, but the game in America like their coffee and their hamburgers have become so formulaic that they set up their golf courses with 30-yard wide fairways and first and second and third cuts of rough all at different heights. It's, it's such a formulaic, formulaic and dull and predictable and fair way to set up golf courses. I'm using fair as a, as a bad adjective in this sense. <laughs> it, and I, from, yeah, from Jason Webb. One more before we get to a break, Hazy, and then yeah, we'll come back with yeah. a whole lot more. But, more here. Yeah, go yeah, on. but I'm going to give you one off the off the grid here. I think this is uh, we need to just change it up before we go to a break. Oh, okay, go on. Sorry to do this to you, but this is from Rob Williamson, who's uh, very well known to to Clates. Um, great bloke, uh, former caddy of Clates, also. Um, his question is: Can I ask him to recount the moving ball story in Spain? So let me just the background of this, Plates, from, from Rob's perspective. It was 1990, and he was on his second week on your bag. 
The first week, he kicked another player's ball and you'd missed the cut in France. We're in Spain week two and find ourselves in the lead with four holes to play. Then his ball moves in the rough after he's addressed it. It is a tale of woe from there. Please explain. I have no memory. (laughs) (laughs) But But I do remember him kicking Ross Drummond's ball in France the week before. So... From the the caddies are the best at nicknames. So he was Yeti from then on. Bigfoot. Um, <laughs> the, only thing, the next week was the old boss when VJ Singh won. I think I was in the lead or near the lead on playing a par five. But I don't remember the ball moving. So, okay. But I guess it did. He says you finished ninth. He said there was a broken putter, a broken locker, and my penalty was to take the clubs to the next event. The broken club, true. The broken locker, don't remember. Probably true. Um, yeah. Anyway, BJ won. I remember that. <laughs> right. Hey, uh, there's a heap more to come uh, on Ask Clays. There's some fantastic questions have been bowled up. So we'll get to those on the other side of this. Uh, you're listening to Inside the Ropes. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. Ask Clates with uh, Mike Clayton, Mark Hayes, Andy Marr. Uh, I think that might have been a bit of selective memory, Hazy, from Clayton in the pre- prior to that break. I, I don't reckon. For a man who remembers as much as he does, he doesn't forget that, I don't think. I've got no memory of that. No memory. The facial hair of old Tom Morris circa 1862 and you couldn't remember dropping from first to ninth. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> exactly. All right, Clayton. this is coming from Jason Webb. Um, and I'm, I'm going to give you an out here. I'm going to suggest that it, the, 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 the land that Jason's asking about may already have a golf course on it, okay? So uh, if you had the ability to build a course on any piece of land around the world, where would it be? Hobart. Just in Hobart, full stop. Hobart, yeah, that's it. What, just on Macquarie Street, Clayton? What are you talking about? I hope that's a big city, Hayden. You know that. <laughs> Anywhere in particular or like Hobart? Kind of where Hobart? Well, I'm, I'm just going to tell you Hobart. Okay, right. It sounds like there might be something on. Sounds like, is there something you're not telling us? Yeah, there's some, yeah. Just, we're, just, we're keeping it quiet for a while. <laughs> right, okay. Can I declare, I've always, do you guys know, um, you, I think you'll know it, Clates. I don't know about you, Hazy, whether you get down that neck of the woods very often, but, um, you know, the quarantine site down the end of uh, Point Nepean Road, you know, quarantine down there with the old army. I've, I've walked over that. It's great land. Oh, oh I mean, it's, it's down I, near the rip, Andy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, it may have never changed, by the way. I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic place and a, and, a, and a national kind of natural treasure for Victoria, but... Every time we go down there, we go down there a few times every summer. I think, gee, this would be a great golf course. <laughs> this could be a golf course down here. It would be world class. There was talk about Portsy moving down there and a developer taking over Portsy. And Tom Doke and I walked over that land. It's actually it's, it's tricky. It's not as good as it looks. Ah. Now, there are some good parts of it, but it's not ideal. Okay. Well, hope, let's, let's hope it never happens. Hazy, no, over to you. No, no chance of that happening. Yeah, good. Uh, we're going to change away from course design here, Clates. Um, I'm going back up to the one I neglected before. So this is about young players. On And it comes from Leroy Martin. 
uh, and he doesn't want you to sit on the fence. He wants you to come off, get the splinters out, and go, who's the top five young Aussie males under 27 and then the top five women? Top five males, wow. Um, I'm, I'm not the best person to answer that because I haven't seen them all. Jed uh, Morgan, who was great at the Australian Amateur this year. Um, Blake Collier, who I caddied for in the Vic Open, was, a, was really good. Uh, Elvis Smiley, who I caddied for in the Australian Open, who is um, Elvis's tre- tremendous young player. Obviously, his mum was a pretty good tennis player, so good pedigree there. Um, under 25, Lucas Herbert, probably. That's, how old is Lucas? Yeah, he'd be under 25, yeah. Min Wu? Uh, yeah, and of course, he's the best, yeah. Yeah. Min an absolute gun. And while you think of the women, I've got I've neglected to put this in the first segment, Andy, I apologise, but a very big announcement today uh, around the Kari Webb series um, was announced today, the, the scholarship holders for 2020. Uh, and Grace Kim gets to have another go at it, and also Gabby Ruffles, um, one based on the... The results in the Curry Web series around Australia, which was won by Grace and Gabby Ruffles, um, when the when the rankings were finished, she was twelfth in the world of the women's amateur rankings. So they're the two who get the big prize to spend some time with Curry. Should we ever get the chance later this year? So um, now, Clates, that's the that's the uh, segue to you naming your top five women under twenty five. Yeah. Well, three of them are in the top fifty in the world. Um, Minji, Hannah, and Sue O. Um, I haven't seen Gabby play for a while because she went to America when she was just starting to play golf. And then they went back to America, but she's obviously you know a tremendous player. Um, Grace is good. At, was it Steph Kariaku who won that thing in New yep. South Wales yep. by hundred shots? Yeah. So I mean, there, there, there are five. You wouldn't say the depth in women's golf is that great, but those five are really good. And obviously, I mean, Sue Menji and Hannah are you know, once-in-a-generation players, so, so they've all done tremendously well. Um, from our great mate Bryden McPherson, Clates, um, when you were playing, did players get injured as often from playing golf as they do now? If it was, it is different. Why? It doesn't seem so. Perhaps they complained less, I think. I mean, <laughs> but... Um, I mean, Seve had a bad back. I mean, Nicholas had a bad hip. I mean, so did Palmer. Um, Peter Thompson hurt his wrist in the mid-70s. Uh, but no, it seems like players are way more injured now. And, and the two most injured sportsmen who weren't football players in Australian history were the two who set out to be the fittest, Pat Cash and Greg Norman. And they were seemingly always injured. So... I mean, I guess Bryden's alluding to is there a connection between how much guys are working out now and how much how many injuries yep. they have? I mean, one question is, you know, you know they're swinging the club so much faster and harder. So you would need to talk to a golf instructor about whether that was, you know, that's leading to more injuries or not. But no, you know, in the mid '80s, it's hard to think of a, a player who took time off because they were injured. You mentioned the great man's. Uh... Name there. There's a couple of questions around Seve Ballesteros here, Clates. One is uh, Cameron Strawn wants your best Seve Ballesteros shot or story. And conversely, uh, Jared Mears, if you can do two at once, we've all heard the Seve story. So give us your best Vaughan Summers or Radar story. 
Well, there are too many savvy shots to... He told me that the best shot he ever hit was the chip at Litham when he had to get up and down to win. But um, even though I never saw it, because I was sitting in the players' lounge 50 yards from where he hit it, the best shot he had to have hit probably was the, the shot over the wall in Switzerland, which Billy Foster recently told on a, on a podcast. Uh, it's beyond belief where he hit that ball from, up over that wall, through the pine trees, over the swimming pool, <laughs> in front of the green. It was just... <laughs> and when it goes to Switzerland, to, <clears throat> and when it knows Dartnell's chemist, John Dartnell was a friend of my dad's, the chemist stopped me at the end of Warrigal Road. He had a Swiss wife, and he, he watched me play that morning. He said, what should I do this afternoon? How should I spend this afternoon? I said, well, go and watch Seve Balceros play golf. And he walked into the players' lounge. He said, I've just seen the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. So it was a bloke who's a member of Sereno, 25 handicap chemist who saw that shot. And within five minutes, hit both John and Billy Foster in that tent said, They'd just seen the most incredible thing they'd ever seen. So if the coronavirus was a golf shot, then he would have it solved by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Can, again, an aside, because, you know, I don't know about you two, you're probably not doing this, Clates, but uh, a lot of us are diving into, um, you know, the official Masters films and the Masters we're not going to have this weekend. But there's, you know, this kind of myopia that exists um, around American golf and American broadcasters about American golfers and the rest of the world. It, it, it is absolutely detectable going back and listening to early Ballesteros Augusta, um, how, uh, how ignorant the Americans were to what Ballesteros was, what he'd done and how good he was before he started piling up wins in America. It, it, it was staggering how, how, Live on air, some members of the broadcast team needed to have things explained to them about what this guy's done over in Europe before they saw it with their own eyes in America. Yeah, well, as we know that you know, to those you know those who are myopic Americans, the world doesn't exist outside America. So anything that Sevy had done outside of America between 1975 and 1980, when he won at Augusta. They didn't notice. But those of us who'd seen him play at Royal Melbourne and in New Zealand where he won and through Europe and, you know, we won in Kenya. He won in Greensboro in 1978. So, you know, how, how great he was was no surprise to people who studied him and watched him play. But for the average American sports fan, he was a, he was a complete mystery. And they never understood him. He never really understood America in a sense because... He, he, he grew up in a country where you go out to dinner at nine o'clock and, and it takes three hours. <laughs> and you, you go to America and you go to dinner at 6.30 and it takes 25 minutes. <laughs> right. So, and of course, that's a massive generalisation, but, um, you know, the cultures of Spain and America after dark are much different. So, you know, it's a completely different culture, but... They never appreciated America the way Australia did. I, mean, I think Sebi came to Australia and people completely got him. They, they loved watching him play and they completely understood him. But the Americans never did, I don't think. So, Clates, you, you can't dodge the bullet. Tell us your best uh, Vaughan Summers or Radar story. 
the best one summer story. Um, well, he, there are too many Vaughn Summers stories. Some of them not the federal. But <laughs> the third hole, the Australian Open in 1979, he was on the green in three and made 12. And the press asked him, well, how did you make 12 at the third hole? He said, this time I missed a tricky three-incher from 11. <laughs> no one, no one loved golf more than Borny. No one, and, and well, well, and in fact, linking the two together, Sevi always. I guess when Sevi, Sevi was a superstitious guy, and I assume when he won or played well in an early Open, he played practice rounds with Borny. So he always wanted to know if Borny had qualified. He always wanted to play a practice round with him. So um, there was a mutual admiration there. I mean, obviously, um, Vaughny adored Seve as a man and, and as a golfer, but um, Seve really liked Vaughny. He was a funny bloke, and he really liked him. We might need our own After Dark episode here, Andy, for this to get some of these stories, I reckon. Oh, there's a great Vaughn Summers story about a couple of blokes, hoodlums, who jumped the fence um, at the National, I think it was, and... Uh, and Vaughan got the call, it was late at night, and Vaughan got the call with a couple of his green staff, or a couple of the green staff who were next door at the um, MGA. The and they, the yeah, yeah the, the capital, I mean, not the national, the capital. And they jumped in some buggies and tried to, they knew where they were on the course and they headed out there to try and chase them off the course. And Vaughan drove a buggy into one of the bunkers. It was getting quite late at night and he caused about, $80,000 worth of damage to the bunker and the buggy. And Have you heard that story, Clates? No, no. but no. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it surprises you too much there, Clates. No, no. Hey, uh, Luke, Thomas, Luke Thomas wants to know, uh, and maybe, uh, look, you can answer this question, whatever version of golf we're dealing with in terms from an equipment perspective, Clates, but how far did Shark hit a pasture? Like, at, at your best and his best, what, what was the kind of yardage difference like? Well, uh, 30 yards, probably. So, I, I remember playing Kionga, first hole at Kionga, long path five, green up the hill there, playing with Stuart Ken and, the, and Norman in the third round there one year. Um, Gideon and I just hit nice drives and nice layups. We were the two iron or a three iron, maybe, and then pitch up to the green. And... Greg flew it on, driving a three would flew it on the green. And that would be kind of routine now for guys who hit the ball the way they do now. But And we'd seen it before, but or, or before, but Kenny just kind of looked at me and said, you know, this guy's unbelievable. And he was, you know, it was incredible how far he could hit the ball for the time. So, I mean, that was at a time when no one hit the first of Keon Green too. He just flew it on the green. Now, that, that green's quite a way above the fairway took the driver and threw it out and flew it up there on the green. So it was massively long for the time. Yeah. Clates, um, there's a million questions here. We're probably going to have to cut it short here in yeah. a second and, and get going. I'm not even sure which one to pick out, Andy. But um, no, You can finish it off, Hazy. Uh, maybe the story here. You've often told the story about Adam Scott, um, you know, a brilliant young Adam Scott. Which player more than any other did you initially think had little chance of making it as a pro and yet ended up surprising you by being successful and what changed? And that question comes from Time for Coffee, whoever you are. Time for Coffee, right? Okay. Well, 
off the top of my head, um, Colin Montgomery, I would say, because Monty came out on the tour. A, you know, he, he tells the story about going for a job to work for IMG because he didn't think he was good enough to be a player. And they said, you know, why don't you give it a try? So when Monty came out, he had this kind of floppy-looking swing and he just didn't look very good, but he had lots of arrogance and confidence about it. Everyone just assumed that he was a much better – he thought he was a much better player than he actually was. There were Chris Moody coming in and telling this story about how Monty had shot 68 somewhere. You know, he slapped it here and he slapped it there and he skunked it there and he did this and he did that. And I can't believe he shot 68. And it took the whole tour about four years, three or four years, to figure out that whilst he had this floppy-looking swing that technically wasn't... Well, I once asked David Ledbetter, we, I, I was, we were standing behind Monty, and I said, what would you do with that swing? And he said, God, where would you start? And I think it took the tour, the whole tour in Europe, three or four years to figure out this guy's actually really good. And by the time, you know, five or six years later, everyone knew what a great ball striker he was. I mean, probably the best ball striker in the world for a period. But he just didn't look that, he looked unathletic, it looked floppy, it just, technically it just looked really odd, but it was his own move. And, you know, my bet would be that if, when Monty came out in 1988 or 89, there wasn't one player on the tour who would have said, that guy's going to win eight order merits in a row, not one. But he did, because you know, over time, we all came to respect how well he hit the ball and, and how well that swing worked and how smart he was in never changing it. Doesn't that say something, though? Just, like, doesn't that tell you something about, you know, Golf. I mean, if you if isn't a good teacher somebody who takes what someone's got and works within the parameters, clakes, or do you, are you a believer in the rebuilder and the we want to have everybody swing in the club the same way? If you if you're one of these sort of production line coaches, where, where do you sit on that? Well, I think there are you know there's an orthodox way to swing the club that Adam Scott, Nick Fowler, you know, the guys that are the things. That, on the plane, and it goes up and down the same line pretty much, and, and that's the most efficient and effective way to do it. But what do you do if Jim Furyk or Lee Trevino or Justin Johnson or Colin Montgomery jump at your teaching studio? And lots of teachers would have changed that move or, or those moves. But you know, one thing's for sure is you never would have heard of those guys. Mm. So, you know, they, they all had great goal swings because they all hit great shots for a long period of time. I mean, Trevino had one of the best moves ever. And, and no one hit the ball straighter or more accurately than Jim Fury or Kelvin Pete. So they, they all owned their own swings in a way. So sure there's a room for um, quirk and unorthodox un, un, un swings. But who doesn't like love watching Ernie swing or Adam or Tiger or, or, or the classic uh, Peter Thompson or Hogan or Sneed or you know those classic swings that are much more um, normal in, in, in inverted commas. But so are you? Are you more impressed? Are you more impressed by a beautiful swing like a textbook copybook swing, or are you more impressed by great ball striking? Well, great ball striking, but you know, and I mean, I I love watching Lee Trevino play golf. I mean, he was. You know, I think he and Hogan are seen as being the best two ball strikers of, you know, 1950 to pre-Tiger probably. I think Tiger 
certainly with the Irons has been the greatest ever probably, but Hogan and Trevino were amazing players and, you know, they both had their own swings, but, you know, Bob Golby and after Trevino won, won the Open in 1968, so Golby won the Masters in 68, Trevino won the US Open. Golby said, you guys will be playing benefits for this guy in five years' time. But, but, but I think like Monty over time, people came to realise how great Trevino's move was. Yeah. Because, you know, he just needed, like Mon- Monty, to ramp up the evidence of how good it was. And, and year after year, Torino played great golf. It was amazing how well he played. Uh, Clates, we could do it for uh, all day, I reckon. And God knows we've got all, well, some of us have got all day to do it. Some of us <laughs> have to get a wriggle on. Um, we better let you go. Thanks for being part of it again. We love the fact that you're open to taking these questions from all over the place and you do it as well as anyone. Thanks for being okay. part of it again, mate. Thanks, mate. Enjoy it. It's good fun. I'm more, I'm, I'm more impressed, Andy, than he didn't answer all the questions on Twitter this time before we got to this point. <laughs> right. Well, now I'll have to yeah. answer all the ones you didn't ask. <laughs> no, no, no. We might, have to, hey, we might get you back next week. Don't worry about that. Uh, there, there won't I'm be anything else to do next. But we'll get you back next week for version two. Yeah, there's not much else going on. No, no, no. Good on you, Mike Clayton, joining us, uh, part of the family here on Inside the Ropes. Uh, the day that two women over at Albany Golf Club had a hole in one on the same hole, a couple of groups apart, we're going to tell that story to you when we come back. Let's go back Inside the Ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. Terrific to have you at company uh, in these very odd times again. I think, Hazy, we need a good story. Every now and again, we need to focus on some of the good things that have still been happening recently in the game, and you've got a fantastic story for us to share this week. Yeah, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and, and my pathetic uh, technical ability around Skype has prevented me from getting to Albany any quicker than this, but we've got a great story from the beautiful south of Western Australia, uh, and we're joined today by, uh, by Dorothy Laffin and Robin Sobey, who have had the very rare occurrence, Andy, of having not back-to-back, but holes in one on the same hole in the same competition, only minutes apart. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. you must have been just just stunned when you when you had the one and then realised you made it had the other one as well. Yeah, I was. I sort of was, you know, on a real high, and then someone comes up to me, you're never going to guess what happened. And I said, what? Dorothy Lathens had a hole in one as well. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, the whole mu- Dorothy, Dorothy, the whole must have been playing particularly easily that day, was it? Very easy. I was quite shocked right. to don't the hole in one, really. Right. Who? So, what was the time difference between the two of you having your ace? Uh, I'm not really I'm, sure because I know I was a few groups behind Robin, but I'm not altogether sure how much further. Do you I know? About half an hour you got in after us, so, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was quite funny because when I had, when the ball went in the hole, initially you think, oh, gosh, I hope it's really gone in there and I'm not having some sort of a negative hallucination here. And then when I got up, I realised that there was no marker, no nearest the pin marker on the thing, so I thought, oh, someone's been really close. Walked up and there was Robin's name, which was just just remarkable, just amazing, really. And did the girls go crazy in the clubhouse afterwards when they realised what had happened? Yes, they did. 
especially yeah. all those old girls quite excited about getting some free drinks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you must have discussed what uh, clubs you hit in there. Can you tell us? Uh, maybe you go first, Robin. What what club did you hit uh, in um, for your for your hole in one? Okay, I'm my seven iron, and uh, I don't tee up when I hit on a par three because I. Real, you know, think, well, if I don't use the tee on the fairway, I'm not going to use it on the tee. <laughs> and it just come off really, you know, great. It wasn't along the ground. It was nice in the air, nice and straight, and just, yeah, rolled up and bang, in the hole. <laughs> Have you had one before, Robin? Uh, well, not a real one. Um, we're not in a competition. I had one, we went, had a round at Wanneroo a few years ago, and I went in the hole there, but. Never actually ever counted as, as a hole in one, but yep. So this is the real one. <laughs> what, about what, about, you, what about you, Dorothy? Yeah, what clubs are you hitting? Well, I hit the seven as well. Yeah, so right. that was interesting. But for me, I had to really focus because my seven, I often just just hoik it into the bunker. So I was so busy focusing on hitting it straight, and then it was a bit of a flat shot. So I said, Oh no, this is this is not a good shot. This is crap. Then I thought, Then oh, it's going to be not too bad. Oh, it's in the hole. So that was the full story because, um, yeah, it was just like that. Just And then you think, oh, really? Mm. <laughs> and, and how many have you had before? Is that your first? Yes, never had a hole-in-one before. In fact, about oh, a month ago, I guess, I was five centimetres from the same hole. Um, and I thought, well, that's it. That's my hole-in-one for my entire lifetime of golf. I'm never going to be that close again. And then before you know it. In she goes four weeks later. Mm. So it's the 14th there at Albany. It's on a beautiful coastal course from standing. Is that right? What course to everyone who's listening a little bit? Well, it's classified as a Lynx course. So it's basically built on the sand dunes. It's got um, lots of pavements, which is, a, a you know, the coastal foliage. And um, probably half of the holes you can see the water from. And the, the 14th, which is where the hole-in-one was, is really lofted. So you stand up there and any breeze, you get it, any wind, you get it, and you can see see the ocean. So it's quite spectacular. Is that looking? Is that Middleton Beach? I don't want to go all ge National Geographic here, Andy, but is that Middleton Beach? Yes, it is. That just looks magnificent. I so want to be there right now. Gee, I'm impressed, yeah. Daisy. So, ladies, what's going on with, with um, coronavirus over there? There's a lot of disquiet you know, from a lot of golfers about their ability, particularly over on the East Coast, to get on golf courses at the moment and, you know, have a, have a game. What, what's, the, what's the state of play like over in WA? We still can go out um, with two of us um, with no competitions, but, yeah, just two go out and it doesn't have to be from your family. It can be with somebody else, um, which is great for us because at least we can still get out there. Otherwise, it would be, yeah, because I've lost my job, so I'm at home. Um, mm. Husband's at home, so, yeah. Um, so much you can do with him, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> He's going to paint the house. <laughs> of course, of course. So, so how does can it I... work? Is it, do you have a timesheet that you have to strictly abide by? Or, or is there, is it just turn up and obey the sort of distancing regulations and um, enjoy a round of golf. How's it working over there? Yeah, everybody's been good, you know. We just turn up and sort of wait till someone's off the tee box and halfway down the fairway before we get on the tee box. Everyone is being adult. 
Has it been busy, ladies? Has it been when you turn up? Are there people all over the place? Not, no, pretty scattered. Yeah, it's steady, but yeah, scattered. You're not sort of, yeah. I think everyone's just taking the whole day to do it. So yeah, mm. yeah. And it's also really quite nice because I mean I haven't been down because I live half an hour's forty minutes drive from. Late last week, but then it was really nice because lots of people out on their own and um, just people with their dog on a lead. And we finished all probably about half past four in the afternoon, and there were quite a lot of people in the car park just waiting to go out. So it's really nice to see people using using the facility, the beautiful weather, and um, yeah, just doing the right thing. It's good. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you. I from it was Davida, I think, from the golf Albany Golf Club who put me on to you guys in the first place. She sent me a photo of you guys with a – is it a voucher or something from Pelicans? You'll have to explain what that is. Do you get to use that or do you have to pass it on to someone from out of town or what's the go? Can I do this one, Dorothy? <laughs> yeah, you go this one because this is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, well, Pelicans is, you know, holiday units, 22 beautiful, like four-and-a-half-star units. Anyway, I happen to manage them. Um <laughs> <laughs> The people that own it um, are Rennie and Jan Gardner, um, and Jan plays golf, and she happened to be with me the day I had my hole-in-one. And she all, often when I play with she, she goes, well, have a hole-in-one, Robin, um, then you can go and sleep at work. There you go, Jan, now I can sleep at work. So, yeah. But, no, we, we just we sort of like people to use them, them, the ones that had the hole-in-one, you know, because it's, it's their special sort of um, thing. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's great. It's a hell of a story, ladies. Really grateful to have you um, pop up on the show and have a chat to us about it. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Fantastic story. Uh, what a day. What a day for everybody at the Albany Golf Club and uh, those two ladies. And great to have them on the show. Hey, speaking of females in the game of golf, Hazy, we were talking about schedule alterations right at the top of the show uh, with Clates. And I don't know whether we necessarily dived in as deep as we should have to, the, to what the rest of the women's game might potentially look like for 2020. So do you want to run through that for us? Yeah, I think the big change in, um, since we last spoke, Andy, was that the USGA um, has moved on the Women's Open. Um, so it was originally to be um, in Texas uh, in June, I believe, from memory, or maybe July. Uh, and it's actually June. Uh, and it's moved. It stayed in Texas, but it's actually going to be played on the week of December 7. And because of the, um, you know, getting near the shortest day obviously in texas so um, they're actually going to play it over two courses um rather than just one which is you know it's to the point that we made earlier about what to at what level do you have to get to to get these tournaments in and is it best just to let them go for a year but um that's the big plan that's the big change i suppose the ana inspiration has moved to the week of september 7 um, we already know that the evian championship has moved into that uh, olympic period at the second week of august there um, so there's a lot of toing and froing going on at the moment, but they're the main ones. But I, it seems oh. odd to me that you could play a major championship over two courses. Presumably, um, they just get it done Thursday and Friday, and then switch to the main course, which I assume is the Champions Golf Club in Houston. 
Um, but yeah, that's an odd way to play a major championship in tomorrow. Well, I, I don't know about you. Oh, I can understand why. Uh, I, I can understand why the um, uh, the administrators are, are scrambling. I understand that. I understand that they want to. They've got contractual obligations. They've got the history of the game. They've got you know honor boards. They've got you know. They, there's a whole lot of stuff that they want to maintain. Um, you know the the chronological order of things. I, I understand all that. I don't know whether I don't like the public uh, discussion about all of this. I, I know we're interested and we're talking about golf and all the rest of it, but the mere um, uh, suggestion that we're going to get all of these things in and we're going to concertine the whole thing in and we're going to get it done and we're going to play this and it's so important that it has to be done, um, which is not necessarily the the tone that it's coming through all the time in, but it is in in the in the minds and out of the mouths of some. It's blind, particularly in America. It seems completely blind to what is going on in their own country at the moment. And I, I don't know whether from right from the very top of the tree in the States, uh, we're getting the greatest sense of uh, reality for how important and serious this thing is. And I mean the office, office of the President of the United States of America, who's already lost his battle with Easter Sunday. That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I just wish that would say, look, there's bigger fish at fry here. There's, there's people's lives at stake. Um, when we've got something to tell you, we'll tell you. You know, until then, let's be safe, everybody. Stay home. Golf's not that important, and, and we'll be okay. You know, just just wish that was the kind of there's more of that happening rather than what we seem to be talking about on a weekly basis. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, you know, for you to say that golf isn't that important, I mean that that's 100% correct to me. It's a People have been listening to this uh, and they're dying in the wool, rusted on golfers, and they'll be tearing their hair out saying that we're both idiots for saying that. Mm. But that's only in direct reference and comparison to the, to the tumult that's going on around the world. Um, you know, we all love golf. We all want it to be played, but surely you make those decisions when it's safe and appropriate to, rather than, to my mind, there's too many decisions being made. Uh, and I understand why, again. Um, based on the dollar, um, you see that you know even the AFL and the NRL are desperate to get back out because yep. of yep. The, you know the media deals, the TV deals, so they can pay everyone else down the line. And I understand why you you know you're making those decisions, but gee, it's hard work right now when that's clearly not the priority. <laughs> um, it's been fun with Clates. Uh, it's great catching up with the ladies. Anything else before we wrap it up? And- Nah, just stay, stay safe, everyone. Yeah, like, you know, it's yep. a crazy time. So we'll, we'll we'll try and keep this going as long as we can. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll manage to get a few volunteers to get on Skype with us, but we'll just do our best. Good on you, mate. See you next week. Thanks, Murray. Look after yourself. Mark Hayes uh, joining us. Great to have Mike Clayton, part of the show. Great to cross over to Elby and catch up with those uh, girls who made a bit of history at that golf club. Thanks for being part of it today, episode 158. As Hazy said, be safe. Folks, look after one another. We'll be back next week to do it all again.